It's good to see you today. If you've got your Bible, while we're taking up this morning's offering, we're going to uh, be in Acts chapter 28 is where we're going to uh, begin today. And we are almost done with our series in the book of Acts. We've got this week and then one more week, and we will uh, we'll wrap this up. But Acts chapter 28 is, is where we're going to uh, begin today. But I want to begin with a picture. Uh, this is a picture of a race nearby. How many of you have participated in the Route 66 races. Anybody? The half marathon, the marathon. This is my kind of crowd. All right. Um, so, <laughs> so a few years ago, I was foolish enough to, um, to run the Route 66 marathon. And uh, I was trying to help uh, a family member qualify for Boston. And, and so I was going to run with her. And on mile 20 of the Route 66 marathon, I made a promise to God, and the promise went something like this. If you will let me finish this race, I will never run another marathon as long as I live. And I don't know about you, but when I make deals with God, I like to make promises that actually make my life easier. Um, not, you know, like, so, like, I will eat ice cream for the rest of my... Um, and so, I will never... And I want to say, I have kept that promise... From that day, I've never run another marathon because um, it was not my best experience. I had run one marathon prior to that, and I had not trained well for this one. I thought, ah, I'm running with my sister-in-law. She goes a little bit slower. I'll just sort of pace her, and it'll be fine. And around mile 20, I waved to my family as I, as I went by, and you might think to yourself, like, ah, you know, you're almost done, like 20 miles. That's almost there. Um, but that is not true because there are 6.2 miles to go, and those are like the worst miles of the whole race. And so both my legs cramped up. I couldn't bend my knees. I ended up in an aid station, and I sort of like gimped across the finish line and, and fell into the aid tent where a nurse asked me um, really a pretty uh, fitting question, which is, um, what's wrong? And, <laughs> and I said, I ran a marathon. <laughs> and she, she didn't help me after that. But, and so I'm, I'm just in the aid station, and I'm hurting, and I'm, I'm struggling, and I, I, I look out. I can sort of see the finish line of the marathon, and it looks different than the scene that's on the screen because the scene on the screen Everybody is smiling. They're wearing sort of like decorative skirts, and there's confetti. And, and the scene at the finish line was different because I could see that everybody was finishing at this point. I mean, everybody who was there was at the finish line. Everybody was finishing. But not everybody was finishing well. Everybody was finishing, myself included. Not everybody was finishing well, um, and I was in sort of the latter category, and it seems to me that, um, well, that's true of that race, okay, everybody finishes at some point, even if you don't cross the finish line, you finish in one way or another, but not everybody finishes well. It's also true of life. Everybody finishes, and this may be sort of like a morbid thought, like the finish line is approaching. <laughs> you will finish. Everybody finishes. Not everybody 
finishes well. Uh, and that's true, we could say it's true of life in general, but it's true of like more specific areas of life. It's true of, let's say, marriage. Everybody finishes. Um, your marriage um, will reach the finish line. And this is not the time to say amen um, or sigh or anything. Like don't, don't say anything. Um, and you even sort of hint at this at your vows. You say, till death do us part. There's a finish line. Everybody finishes um, in marriage, but, but not everybody finishes well. And many of us know that, right? Uh, it's true not just in marriage. It's true in your, in your ministry. And not just as like a full-time paid pastor, but, but all Christians are called to ministry. And uh, in ministry, in many cases, ministry is like that race where everybody launches out into ministry, but, but far fewer people um, finish well. And I heard a pastor say recently that the most important day of your ministry is not the first day, but the last day when you stand before God and, and you give, give an account. Uh, everybody finishes, not everybody finishes well. It's true of marriage, it's true of ministry, it's true of, your, it's true of your career. There are many ways to leave a profession. Some of them are celebratory, some of them um, not so much. Everybody finishes, not everybody finishes well. And we're a culture, it strikes me, that excels at starting, uh, but finishing is more difficult, is it not? I, I go to a gym, and every year at January, toward the end of January, it's really crowded, and it's tough to, like, get a spot, and, and, and the guys who work there is like, don't worry, in a few weeks, it'll be way better. <laughs> right, we excel at starting, but finishing is, is, is difficult, and that's true with starting a new habit. Um, it's, it's true with any number of areas, and so, so the question we've been asking in this series is really a, a pretty simple question. How do you finish well in life? How do you finish well in life? I think we even have that up on the screen. How do you finish well? And so the way we've been approaching that question is by looking at an individual, uh, a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. And, and to make you feel better, if I've been sort of pounding like about how, you know, finishing well, Paul is a guy who didn't start well. He didn't start well. I mean, if you read the story of Paul, this guy is violent. He's a murderer even. He's a religious bigot. He's sort of this like, self-appointed stormtrooper, inquisitor. Uh, he hates the way of Jesus. He hates Christians. He doesn't start well, but he becomes obsessed with um, finishing well. And he even writes about this a couple points in his letters. They won't be up on the screen, but 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Everybody runs but not all get a prize. And so I buffet my body so that after instructing others, I will not be disqualified myself. He uses this sort of finishing analogy, this, this race. He says in 2 Timothy 4, this is probably right before Paul um, was executed, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so we're looking at Paul as an example of, here's a guy who didn't start well, maybe like some of us, man, we've had all sorts of false starts and missteps, and, and, but, he, but he was obsessed with finishing well, and so how did he finish well? What does it look like to finish well in life? So that's the question, Acts chapter 28, verse 1, we're going to pick up today and, and pull some sort of 
truths out with regard to that question. If you remember where we left off, Paul has just been in a shipwreck. Um, There was a storm. There was all sorts of danger, and he sort of assumed this kind of leadership position, even though he was a prisoner. And it says this in Acts chapter 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta, and the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. And Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. And when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island, and he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery, and Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. And when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. This is God's word. You may have noticed um, at several points in the passage, there is this language of we. We did this. They helped us, right? We and us. And the reason is that the guy that writes this, Luke, is with Paul at this point. And so he is experiencing this. He's seeing it with his own eyes, as an eyewitness. He's he's watching how Paul uh, behaves under duress and under difficult circumstances. And so we've asked this question, what can we learn from the finish line of Paul's life, because this is, we're approaching the finish line, that would help us as we think about how to finish well in, in any area. And so maybe the first thing we could say is this, the first of sort of four insights, how does Paul finish well? We could say this, that despite success, Paul refuses to stop serving. Despite success, Paul refuses to stop serving. You're like, well, what kind of success do we have here? Because he's like a prisoner, right? He's in, he's in chains. Uh, what kind of success? But we could ask this question, who on the boat, remember they've been on this boat, is now universally recognized by sort of any objective standard, as the leader, as the one who has helped to save everybody despite the fact that he's a prisoner. And, and the answer is, is Paul, right? This, like his status has risen in the story. If you remember from last week in chapter 27, in chapter 27, verse 9, he's the one who warns them of danger, that, hey, this is going to go bad if we set sail there's going to be problems. They don't heed the warning, but he, he warns them of danger. In verse 22 of chapter 27, he's the one that encourages them in the midst of the storm that, that nobody is going to be lost, even though it seems like that's you know, not the case. In verse 31, he's the one that stops the crew 
from jumping into the lifeboats and leaving everybody else to die. I mean, he saves the, the entire rest of the ship in, in that incident. And, and he's the one whose presence stops the soldiers from killing all of the other prisoners because they're afraid that they're going to escape. Paul has achieved success in terms of his status on this ship as somebody who should be listened to, respected, um, as a leader, despite the fact that he's in chains. I don't know if you've ever known anybody who just like, they just sort of ooze leadership. And it doesn't matter whether they have, you know, degrees to back that up. It doesn't matter. Like, they just have this sort of, like, the, peop- the word that people use is gravitas. Gravitas. That, like, when they speak, there's just sort of this weightiness, this gravitas behind it. And Paul is like that. He's, he's now recognized as the guy who has sort of saved the day, despite the fact that he's a prisoner, but what's the first thing he does when he gets to shore? In the story, he goes right to gathering brushwood to fuel the fire that's keeping everybody warm, right? And if it's me, I'm like, dude, you guys get the sticks. I just saved everybody, right? I'm going to sit down and take a load off. You're welcome, right? That's how I'm like, but Paul doesn't do that. He gets right to gathering. He's helping the natives gather brushwood for the fire after he just saved everybody's life. Second example of servanthood, right? He's visiting the home of an elderly man nearby. He prays and God heals him. And then Paul goes on through the power of the Spirit to heal a giant group of people on the island. Meanwhile, he's in chains, right? I mean, think about the irony of this picture. He's in chains, and everybody's coming to him and asking for help, and he's, he's serving them despite success. Paul refuses to stop serving. And we could ask the question, like, where does Paul get this strange view of leadership? This strange way of thinking about status and leadership. And, and if you remember, several months ago, we, we preached on a different passage, and I laid out sort of a, an image on the screen. It's sort of a, a U-shaped image. And we talked about it as Jesus' shape of ministry, the shape of Jesus' ministry that Paul writes about in another book called Philippians chapter 2. And, and we argue that this is Jesus' way of ministering, and it sort of became the pattern for Paul's entire life. It says in Philippians 2 that although Jesus, although he was in very nature God, so he had this elevated status, right? Although he had that elevated status, he humbled himself even to death on a cross. And therefore, the passage sort of hinges, therefore, because of that humility, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And the people who are studying Paul these days argue that this becomes the pattern not just for Jesus's ministry 
but for Paul's ministry. So he has this new status, this elevated status as the leader, the one who sort of saved everybody in the storm, and right? And he encouraged them, and he kept them from killing the prisoners and all this stuff. But he doesn't sort of lord that status over everybody. Instead, he humbles himself and he serves. And that's his view of, of leadership, is this servant-hearted leadership. He gets it from Jesus, and it's this mentality that the way to be exalted in the eyes of God is to, is to humble yourself before other people, that, that down is the new up, service is the mark of leadership, humility is the mark of divinity, and so Paul keeps serving. Um, and I don't know about you, if it were me, like in my own sort of just flesh, that wouldn't have been my approach. <laughs> I would have been like, how about you take these chains off, right? Um, and we'll just call this good. And, and Paul doesn't do that. He keeps, he keeps serving. The, the phrase from Karl Barth that I quoted previously, uh, a theologian from Germany, he says, um, he says that it's as godlike to be humble as it is to be exalted. It is as godlike to be humble as it is to be exalted. And so Paul refuses to stop serving. And so if we're talking about finishing well, if we're talking about my life and your life and sort of application, maybe the question is, is this, very simple question. How do you serve? How do you serve others? Right? And some of you are like moms and you're like, well, I don't know, every moment of every day. That's, uh, but how do you serve um, and especially for people who have ascended to positions of, like, authority. Maybe you're a boss. Maybe you're over, over various areas and various employees and various people that work beneath you. Then the question becomes, okay, even in my position of leadership, how do I serve in that position of leadership? Um, how do I not exercise power, as Jesus says, like the pagans who lord it over one another, but how do I exercise a God-like leadership, which is this sort of service, this sort of humility, not by becoming a doormat, not by abdicating sort of your leadership responsibilities, not by accepting sort of abuse or, un, you know, but, but how do I serve in the midst of a position of leadership? Uh, Paul seems to think that service is, is key to, to, to finishing well, despite Success, he refuses to stop serving. Number two, number two, despite misfortune, Paul refuses to start whining. And I wanted to come up with a more sort of like theological term than whining, <sighs> but I have three kids and it felt right. And so despite misfortune, he refuses to start whining. Verse 3, verse 3, Paul, he's serving, right? He gathers a pile of brushwood, and as he's serving, as he puts it on the fire, a viper is driven out by the heat and fastens itself on his hand. And I know some of the guys, if you were just like messing with your smartphone or something, and you heard me say a viper was driven out, you may have had this sort of image. It's not <laughs> that kind of viper. And so, it's a viper is driven out, but it's not that kind of viper. It's more 
like this, and I'm under strict orders to return this to the three-year-old, um, because believe it or not, she sleeps with it. Um, and we're not quite sure what that means. Um, we're thinking uh, Slytherin. So um, this is her viper. <laughs> a viper is driven out. These are the jokes. Uh, a viper is driven out and attaches itself to Paul's hand. And it's just sort of hanging from its, like it says it's just hanging there. It doesn't just release. It's, it's hanging there. And if I'm Paul... I'm naturally torn, like sort of driven a little bit towards kind of pessimism and complaining, if I'm honest. If I'm Paul, I'm like, like, really, God? Really? Like, I just saved everybody. I'm in chains. I'm your apostle, right? I'm helping out gathering brush fire because these fools are too lazy to do anything. And the first thing that happens is a snake bites my hand. Like, really, God? Like, I'm, if it's me, I'm complaining at this point. I'm, I'm whining, I'm complaining, but, but there's no evidence of that in the story. Um, Paul keeps going. It says he shakes it off, right? Insert Taylor Swift reference. And he keeps going, right? He just keeps serving and he keeps going. He doesn't, there's no evidence that he falls into this sort of self-pitying um, um, complaining, um, whining mentality. And, and the reality is, maybe this is just me, but the reality is, as I, as I would read it, is that um, in a modern society, as our lives have become more comfortable, our propensity to whining has actually increased rather than decreased. Is that true? Is anybody else... Like, like, you would think it would be the inverse, right? That things are easier, and so everybody's just happy. Um, but it's, it's not the case. It's not the case. And so I, I saw a great illustration of this um, recently on the Conan O'Brien show, very, you know, theological. Um, and Conan was interviewing a comedian by the name of Louis C.K., and there's this sort of famous interview, it's sort of gone viral, and I wouldn't recommend all of Louis C.K.'s comedy, but this is just on Conan, right? And Conan is talking to Louis C.K., and he goes into this bit, and the bit, I think, has sort of been dubbed on the internet, like, um, things are amazing and no one is happy. That's the name of the bit. Things are amazing and nobody's happy. And he goes into this thing, like, if you're an older person, or even, like, I, I remember this as a kid, something um, a rotary telephone, right? You remember these? And you used to have to, you, you had to take it all the way around and it like made sparks or something and that's how you called. <laughs> and, and he says you used to like secretly resent people with zeros because you had to like wait a really long time to get, that's how we, I remember at my grandma's house, that's how we used to communicate, right? And now we have these, these smartphones in our back pockets that they contain more computing power than the space shuttle they took to the moon, right? And yet, we get super frustrated when we have to wait like three seconds for it to pull up Facebook, right? And he's like, he's, he says he's in this bit, he's like, like give it a second, right? It's going to space, right? Give it a second. We used to have to do this thing, and now it's like, but he's like, things are amazing, and nobody, nobody's happy. He, he, he talks about, uh, he uses the analogy of airline travel, right? And how you hear these horror stories of airline travel, and the horror stories go like this. First, 
we had to sit on the tarmac for 30 minutes. And we just sat there, right? And, and then he, he said, yeah, and then you flew from New York to Los Angeles <laughs> in like four hours. That used to take like four years, right? If you've, played, if you've played the game called Oregon Trail, you know, like five people would die on the way. It was horrible. Um, and he says, things are amazing and nobody's happy. We have descended into this sort of whining, complaining mentality. And if you want to finish well, I'm convinced of this. I'm, my goal, and I'm not there yet, is to be an elderly guy someday who doesn't complain a lot, right? And I'm, I'm not on a good start, right? I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm hoping it's not like the marathon where, it, you know, but, but Paul doesn't descend into whining. Despite misfortune, he refuses to start whining. He keeps serving. He keeps going, despite the fact that he's got a snake hanging from his hand. Number three, despite false rumors, Paul, at least as far as we can tell, refuses to be bitter. He refuses to lash out in bitterness. This is my favorite part of the story in verse 4. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice, in the Greek, it's the, it's the Greek word for righteousness, dike, or justitia, has not allowed him to live. This guy's a murderer. 